to John's Gospel in the 14th chapter. Reading John 14, beginning with verse 15 through 17. This is the word of God. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither knows him, neither sees him, nor knows him, But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be with you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Thus far, the word of God, let us pray. O Lord our God, we do rejoice that we are a people called out of the world. As we have rejoiced earlier that you are the God who has saved us. And as your people, you speak to us, you deal with us, you dress us, you strengthen us. And Father, as we are assembled to hear your word, we ask that you would bless the preaching and hearing of your word, that Christ be magnified, that our God would be lifted up and exalted. Bless that which you commanded and appointed by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Augustine of Hippo, uh, a faithful man of God and minister back in the 4th century, prayed to our Heavenly Father, command what you will, but supply what you command. It's a very good prayer that we would acknowledge that God as God, as we were reminded a moment ago as we were considering the law of God, has the right as the Creator and as our God, as our Redeemer, to command what He will. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Him. Then Augustine, in in that statement, recognized that God commands that which we are not, in and of ourselves, able to do. And thus, he added that prayer, provide what you command, supply that which we need. We see something of that in the text this morning as we consider uh, Jesus announcing the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's just remember where we're at. Since coming into the upper room, we have seen Jesus stoop and wash his people, his disciples' feet, and then he told them, that in doing this, he had given them an example. He just set an example that they should follow and in turn serve one another. A little later in that evening, Jesus gave them a new commandment, that they should love one another just as he had loved them. Then he explains that he's going aware, and where he is going, they cannot follow him at that time. He goes on to say he's going to prepare a place for them, and in time he will return to gather them that where he is, they may be also. And following this, Jesus then explained that they, these 11, the foundation of the church, the apostles, and the church then building on them, that they, that we, would do greater works than he had done. Namely, to take the gospel to the Gentile nations. We've just heard from Isaiah how God is proclaiming himself to the nations. He is a God not just to the Jews, but to the, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to all the peoples of the earth. And indeed, he has called out the church to go forth to the ends of the earth. Jesus then made a great promise in that connection, that his people can pray to the Father in his name, and he will do it. That was our focus last week. At this point, in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, 
keep my commandments. Now, there are commentators that said this just seems out of place. It's, this is a, an interruption, a break, whereas what we would see is this is a hinge. This is an important verse. If you love me, keep my commandments. There are two links that connect this verse to what Jesus has just said in verses 12 through 14. First, since the church will be doing greater things, means that she will need power from God. And that's what follows is the coming of the Spirit. And secondly, if the church will show her love for Jesus, we do so by the means of keeping his precepts. And in order to do these things, the church needs, each and every one of us needs power from on high, power from God. Now, the 11 men in that upper room were men just like us. They're of the same nature as we are. Their need is also our need. They were not sufficient for the task that Jesus was setting before them. In order to be faithful and obedient, they would need help. No, they would need a helper. Even the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of the living God. And Jesus promised that he would send that helper, that the church would get that helper that they needed. Now, the big theme that we find in the text this morning is that all those who are united to Jesus by faith receive the Holy Spirit who stays with them forever. So that, to that end, that that we can love Jesus and serve him. All those who are united to Jesus by faith receive the Holy Spirit who stays with them forever so that we can love Jesus and serve him. We're going to use four main headings. First, what does loving Jesus look like? Secondly, an introduction. Let's meet the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit's inner ministry. And fourthly, the Holy Spirit of truth. So we begin with, what does loving Jesus look like? Jesus tells us right here in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is a conditional clause, but I want to set something out. When he says commandments, the word that's translated here, it would be better if we understand it as precepts. Uh, this is not commandments in as we would think of the Ten Commandments that we've just uh, been discussing and re, uh, been reminded about. Certainly the, the Ten Commandments are amongst the precepts of God, but the precepts are much broadly, and the, the precepts of God, of Christ, are those things that he has said now. We see the gospel, the matters of worship, a matter of a relationship with God and with one another, all these things that are revealed in the Scripture. So you can think about at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in the Great Commission, he commissions the church to go forth making disciples, teaching them whatsoever things I have commanded you. As I said, that includes the law, but it's much more. And the word here is best understood as precepts. It's a proper translation of the word Now, something else to note about this, verse 15 is not a command. This is not an imperative to do something. It's just a statement of fact. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's it's an if-then. If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Jesus is our Redeemer. And he's the head of the church. He has established what is true in what is right. He, as he said earlier in this chapter, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Jesus has established this, that no one comes to the Father but by him, that he alone is the way. And God has declared, uh, or Jesus has declared that the church in him and through him will do greater things, greater works than he has done. And 
That is, as we saw a couple weeks ago, carrying the gospel beyond the Jews to the ends of the earth. First, first in Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Jesus has established that we must come to the Father with our request, but we must bring them in his name. These are all precepts. These are non-negotiables. These are things that he has established. And Jesus is saying here that if you love me, you will keep these things. You will want to do that which he has said. So loving Jesus looks like loving his word. Loving Jesus looks like seeking to worship him in the way that he has appointed what he has revealed in his word. Jesus has made the statement uh, earlier and multiple times in John's gospel that uh, he and the Father are one. Uh, He has revealed to his disciples that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul picks up on this in Colossians, declaring that in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So loving Jesus then looks like welcoming all of these truths, welcoming that one whom God has sent into the world, his only begotten Son, that he sent into the world to save sinners, that we abide in these things, we embrace these things, we live by these truths, we're governed by them, we're, we're not willful, we don't go our own way. And indeed, we see in the course of church history even in the present age, there are those who name the name of Christ, and yet they do what they will. They're innovative and creative. They step beyond the bounds of Scripture and seek to engage in another manner. And it really begs the question, do they love Jesus? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will naturally keep my commandments. You will naturally keep my precepts. You will follow me and do what I have said. William Hendrickson helpfully summarizes what Jesus is saying here this way. I'm quoting, quote, If you love, what that is, if with love that is both intelligent and purposeful, and it's a plural, y'all love me. Y'all will accept and obey and stand guard over the rules which I have laid down for the regulation of your heart, your attitudes, and your outward actions. That is to say, we will be governed. Love for Christ means that we're governed by all that Christ has revealed. Children, you can understand that. I want you to think with me about it this way. Your father has rules in your home, certain standards. There are things that you know that are expectations that he has made. For example, he expects you to treat your mother with respect and to obey her. Perhaps he requires you to make your bed first thing in the morning when you climb out, to pick up your clothes, to put away your toys at the end of the day. These are things that your father expects of you. And in these things, God, he is also forbidding things. And so if you love your father, you want to show that love for him. You will naturally show that love for him by doing what he says, by keeping the rules of his household It will be a way that you can show the love for your father. When we do that, uh, we have a well-run household, don't we? And uh, when, as children, we are disruptive of our father's uh, order and plans and structures, it causes chaos. And that's true in the kingdom of God as well. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love me, you will... You will think of what I've said. You will think to please me. You will want to follow after him. Children, I want to tell you something. that uh, 
it's good for you to understand. You struggle to show your love for your father, don't you? You want to, but there are times when you do what you want to do. You go your own way. Well, you know, your parents aren't any different, really. We adults, your parents, the adults in the church, we too struggle with showing our love for Christ. There are times when we are unfaithful and disobedient. We disregard what Christ has revealed and what he has said. And so it's in this context that Jesus then goes on to say, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. And that brings us to our second point. And I've titled this point, Let's Meet the Holy Spirit. We just want to look at some uh, basic things. Uh, We're only going to deal with this but briefly because Jesus is going to be dealing... Uh, with uh, the doctrine and uh, the truth about the Holy Spirit several more times uh, in the upper room discourse. But we might again begin to be thinking as uh, some of the things that are here. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, right on the heels of, if you love me, keep my precepts. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Most of you, indeed most Christians, if you ask them, tell me something about Jesus. Tell me some things you know about Jesus. Tell me some of the things that you know that, uh, that he has done, uh, his purposes. Uh, and, and we could talk about that. I think all of you could, for some, to some time, for some degree, you would be able to talk about things that you know about Jesus. But perhaps we might agree with J.I. Packer when he says, the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the work, or as to what work the Spirit does. In other words, we're much more knowledgeable, much more aware about Jesus, who he is, what he's doing, what he's come to do, what he's promised, but we're not so aware about the Holy Spirit. There's much confusion in the broader church. Paul discovered that when he went to Ephesus, the Ephesians said to him when he was preaching, they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What can we learn then from this text about the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, I will pray. I think, again, this is a decision the translators made to translate the word pray. Um, But it is... uh, it gives us a misunderstanding. It would be better to understand the word as Jesus saying, I will ask the Father, I will request the Father. And it's important for this reason. We pray to the Father through Jesus. He is our high priest. We approach the Father as he has just told us a few verses ago, and we come in his name. The Lord Jesus does not pray the Father. He just asks the Father. And every request that Jesus makes to the Father is answered by the Father, for they are the one mind. They are one God. There's not any difference. And, and, and Jesus would never ask anything that was amiss, though we may. Jesus doesn't approach the Father through any other. He has direct access to the Father. He and the Father are one. And so it would be better for us to understand what Jesus says here. I will ask or I will request the Father, and he will give you another In this passage, if you look, and, and you know I like to point this out, not just to, to be cute or southern or anything, but because it's helpful, Paul's using plural yous all through here. Just about every one of these yous you see is a, a y'all. 
He's talking not just to one individual. He's talking to those 11 men. He's talking to the church that will follow them. He's talking to us today. It is a promise to all who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus' promise, I will give y'all a helper. Now, the original language makes it clear that Jesus is not saying a different helper, but another like myself. I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper. Another helper like I have been. Jesus is a person, and the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, remember, Jesus has told the disciples back in chapter 13 that he is going away. That he's going to the Father. A little while I'll be with you and then I'll be gone. And, and then he says, and he's, he's departing. He's talking about he's going to go to the cross. He'll be laid into the grave. He won't be with him. Then he'll be with him. And then he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And in that context, the disciples uh, would have been fearful. They uh, would have been uh, anxious. They would have wondered, well, what will happen to us? As you consider all that Jesus has done for the last three years, he's called them and they followed him. And where he went, they went. And they've seen him doing and teaching And he has been their rabbi, their teacher. He has been the Messiah in their midst. And now he's been telling them he's going away. But here Jesus promises, I will send you another helper, another one like myself, another one who will take my place and do my work. So this other helper, even the way that Jesus says it, you should get the sense that this is personhood. This is a person he's going to send. And indeed, we learn this about the Holy Spirit. He is a person. He is very God of very God. He is one with the Father and one with the Son. He's not just a force. He is a person. And we find this in, uh, I'm just going to cite four passages. 1 Corinthians 12.11. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, we find that the Spirit decides. That's what a person does. A force doesn't do that. Romans 8, 26, the Spirit acts. A person acts, not a force. 1 Timothy 4, 1, the Spirit speaks. Again, that's something that a person does. In a verse, Ephesians 4, 30, the Spirit grieves. And there are many other passages, but these four just show us that the Spirit is a person. He does those things that a person would do, and indeed, he is one of the divine persons, one of the Godhead. And since Jesus says, I will send another helper like myself, it is necessary to understand that this helper would be divine as he is divine. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, the Scripture makes it clear that the Holy Spirit has divine attributes, as we move further into the text, we'll look to revisit some of these. But just for now, uh, we find that the Holy Spirit is revealed to have eternality. He always is. As we were reminded uh, uh, earlier in the service uh, from our elder that God is. He's self-existence. It's in him, is being. He depends on no other. He is. The Holy Spirit has this same uh, attribute. Because he is God. He's omnipresence. That's to say he is everywhere. He's, om, uh, he's omnipotent. He has all powerful. He's omniscient. He knows all things. You will find those in 1 Corinthians 2.10 and 12, verse 4 through 6, as well as Hebrews 9.14. 4, 9, now, in the Great Commission, you mentioned that earlier, that Jesus names the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
all right there together. And remember, it's the name. You shall baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because they are one God. Not baptized into three persons, but into one God who are in three persons. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. One of the uh, benedictions that uh, we find in the scriptures, uh, one of the benedictions that I use from time to time, uh, places the Holy Spirit right there alongside the Father. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. We find Paul making this glorious benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship or the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul has an understanding that the Spirit is one of the persons of the Godhead. So we're learning. We're being introduced to the Holy Spirit. So it's important that we understand and believe that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a force. Now I'm going to reveal a little bit how old I am. The very first Star Wars movie came out the year I graduated from high school. And much to my alarm, this has been 1977, um, I was alarmed as I heard Christians excitingly proclaiming. They've seen the movie, and they're saying, you know what, the force is like the Holy Spirit. They really said that. And I think that there are still some who think that even today. My friends, that is so wrong. It's misguided at best, and it's blasphemous at worst. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Star Wars is, is a fantasy. It's a, a, a world and a realm created by the imagination of men. Uh, has nothing to do with the scriptures. Listen to the wisdom of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. He was uh, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years. A faithful church, still a faithful church. Dr. Montgomery Boyce says, If we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power... Our thought will continually be. Now, get what he's saying. He says, if, that's, if you think of the Spirit as a force, as, a, as a, a mysterious power, our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? But if we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, as we should, our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit get more of me? More of me. Be uh, more in control of me. Be, be more yielded to the Spirit of Christ who has been given to me. The first of those is a pagan idea. The second of those is New Testament orthodoxy. The Holy Spirit is a person. And oh, that he would have more of us, that we would be more yielded to him whom Jesus has sent to be within us and to control us. Children, I know that a lot of you are big fans of the Star Wars. It's, it's taken on a life of its own. Who, who knew in 1977 that it would have so many episodes and paraphernalia and it's such a following, even cult-like following? But listen to me. Children, the Star Wars, all of that Star Wars stuff is a fantasy. It is not a reality. And it's not truthful. And it has nothing to do with the Bible. It's a made-up story that is false. But the Bible is true. Children, the Bible is true, and everything that the Bible teaches is true. The Bible, even Jesus says, that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's fully God, right alongside with the Father and the Son for all eternity. And here Jesus has promised that he will request the Father, and he will send this divine person, the Holy Spirit, to help every Christian, to dwell with every Christian 
Indeed, the Holy Spirit comes down from the Father at the Son's request, very much in keeping with what we confess in the Nicene Creed. Well, thirdly, we want to consider the Holy Spirit's inner ministry. And again, we're, we're touching on these things so briefly. There's, you know, there's whole books written on the Holy Spirit. One that I highly recommend, if I, my old memory serves me correctly, is by B.B. Warfield. He's written an entire volume on the Holy Spirit and what we can learn from the scriptures about the Holy Spirit. Now here, Jesus uses a unique word to refer to the Holy Spirit. It's parakletos. It's also used one time of Christ. Uh, we, we visit that sometimes when we're hearing the words of assurance for our uh, forgiveness in Christ, Second John 2, 1, that we're told he is the paraclete who speaks on our behalf to the Father. The New King James translates this here as helper. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The meaning is that it is someone who comes alongside, and it's in the context of a legal setting, uh, particularly. A legal advocate. Uh, the word in the Greek uh, in the, that period of time was often used to speak of someone who is a best friend, such a friend who would even go to court with you and speak on your behalf, to speak in your defense. That's how the word is used in that period of time when John is writing. And indeed, the Holy Spirit is such a count, such a helper, an advocate, a legal advocate for us. Some translations have counselor, and that's okay, that's, there's a truth in that, so long as we don't think of counselor like a camp counselor or a marriage counselor. Some of you have heard the term for counselor. You watch legal dramas. I watch some. And uh, the, the client who's employed a lawyer will, will refer to his counselor. Or he may saw, talk to a friend and say, well, I need to check with my counselor. Uh, there here again is this idea of that helper in a legal sense, someone who uh, speaks on your behalf. And certainly that applies to the Holy Spirit. It's also translated in some of the English translations as comforter. And as long as we use this word in the Old English sense, where that means to succor or to strengthen, that's a very legitimate use, that the Holy Spirit is one who strengthens us. But the problem is, the problem with that translation of comforters, too many uh, modern ears think of something like a soft quilt on which to rest upon. And that's not the right way to think of the Holy Spirit He is one who strengthens. He is an advocate for us. He is our counselor in all things related to our life of godliness. So helper, as the New King James translated, too, must be rightly understood. Because sometimes we often think of a helper as someone beneath us, someone who's a subordinate to us. You know, um, I don't see a certain young man here, but he's learning the construction trade, even as I did in high school. And you're there on the job. You don't know much of anything. You're basically, your title is you're a helper. And that's the way we often think of it. My friends, the Holy Spirit is exceedingly more than anything like that. And so we need to, whatever we use, any of these words that are legitimate translations of the word that Jesus uses here, we need to understand them in the right way, according to Scripture. Now, so we said earlier, this helper will take the place of Jesus. Jesus is going to return to the Father. He can't send 
the Holy Spirit while he's on earth. He has a responsibility after his work of salvation, which he's hours away from doing, and then uh, some 40 days later he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father because of his obedience and he's completed the work. He then has work to continue to to be seated on the throne of God. He must be in heaven even as he is already as the Son of God, as God, but he is to be seated on the throne of God as the God-man. He's going to ascend to heaven in his incarnation, in his humanity, to rule and reign over the nations because the Father has given that position to him as an inheritance, as his reward for his completed work. And so Jesus says he's returning to the Father. And as the God-man, he will reign from there. He will longer be physically present with his disciples. We, we read verse 18. I'm not covering that, but Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. He's not going to leave them forsaken. He's going to send another helper, a very sufficient helper, a very uh, unique helper. And the Holy Spirit will be doing for them what Jesus has done for them. And you think again about the context. Jesus says you're going to do greater works. The church is going to spread out through these apostles and those that are converted under their ministry. The church is going to go even to the ends of the earth. And Jesus ministered only in Jerusalem and Judea and, and even Samaria. He ministered in the context of that small country. There's, there's countries, there's, there's millions of descendants of Adam that need to hear the gospel. And Jesus is going to send them. And by sending them with this other helper, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within them and goes with them, they will be able to go with the power of Christ even to the ends of the earth, doing greater things, shattering, scattering the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And so Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit. Now think about this. Jesus intercedes for us with the Father. This is connected to what we were hearing about prayer. We were to ask in his name because he speaks on our behalf to the Father. Well, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with Jesus. We don't come through a priest. Jesus is our high priest. We come to the Father through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to pray, who equips us to pray, who helps us to pray. So in the context of what we've covered, where Jesus has said, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper to help you to pray in this way to me, to pray with wisdom, to pray with faith. I will send my helper. You're going to be doing greater works. I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you. But back to verse 15. It's in between these two. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll be keeping my commandments. You're going to do. You're going to keep my precepts. The Holy Spirit helps us to do that. You know your heart, and I know my heart. And we're often divided, aren't we? In our affections, we're often divided. We, as new creatures in Christ, we want to love Christ with all our heart. We want to be faithful. We want to keep that's what he's commanded. But we stumble. All along the way, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a comforter, an advocate, someone to strengthen you, someone to be with you so that you can do all these things to the glory of the Father. Well, before we go to the last point, just make some application. 
we all dwell in that time since Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we're in the in-between period of his first coming, waiting his second coming, between the first advent and the second advent, which is to come. We live after Pentecost in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying here is this, this coming will be at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit will come with great power. We dwell after Pentecost. There's not been another Pentecost because there doesn't need to be another Pentecost. When the Spirit came at Pentecost, he came in great measure, and he's never left the church. He's never left God's people. We don't need him to come in that manner again. And there's no record of anything like that in the Scriptures. That's where we dwell here now between the two advents of Christ. We dwell in the already of what Christ has secured and the not yet of the fullness and the completion of all that which he's secured. We wait on the Holy Spirit. The promises of the church of old are still ours. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to give us understanding of the word of God. The Holy Spirit has been given, given to us that we would be able to read with understanding. That's why you've heard me say before, you know, pray to the Father through Christ that the Holy Spirit would give you understanding when you open your Bible to read it. That he would give you understanding, that he would feed your heart and then equip you to go and do the things that are the precepts of Christ. The Holy Spirit then is the divine person who comes on us and in us to bring the power of the resurrection to our dead hearts. And once he has come and worked in us, he never leaves us. Well, finally, we want to consider the Holy Spirit of truth. Jesus goes on in verse 17 to say, this is what we need to read 16 because we don't want to break up the thought. He says, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. Jesus is going to teach more in the upper room on the Holy Spirit, as I said moments ago. But there is something here that we want to look at. Uh, Jesus, having referred to the Holy Spirit as a helper, he, he gives him another title. He's the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth. Why does he say that? Well, it's because he communicates the truth to the children of Adam. He is the one that makes known the truth. Now, what did Jesus say in John fourteen six? He says, I am the truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of the truth who makes us to know Christ who is the truth. He brings Christ to our hearts and he brings us to Christ by his working in us. The Spirit of truth communicates truth to men. By referring to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth, we learn that he who bears witness to Jesus, who is the truth, I've had conversations, perhaps you have too, where people say, how do you know this is the word of God? Prove to me that this is the word of God. Bring some evidences. And there's things we can cite and point to. It's accurate and it's the historicity and the things that have happened. But ultimately, how do we know this is the word of God? It's not because the church says so. We know that the word of God is the word of God because the spirit who inspired holy men to write it bears witness with our spirit when we read it that this is the very word of God. The spirit of truth reveals it in our hearts that we would understand that it is what it says it is, what it claims to be. And there's no other book like it because there's no other volume that is inspired by the living God. 
It is remarkable. It is unique. Uh, the world mocks that and says, well, that you're just using circular reasoning. You're, you're saying, this says it's the word of God, therefore it is the word of God. You, you, you can't do that. Well, ordinarily, you can't. But because it is the word of God, the spirit of truth bears witness that this is the word of God. He speaks from the pages of scriptures to the heart of men, the spirit of truth communicating to us that the word is truth. Another aspect of Christ, uh, of the Spirit, being the Spirit of truth is we hear the gospel. Uh, some of you have been hearing it all your life. Some of you, it's, it's just a short while. You might be four, five, six, eight, ten. You hear the truth. You hear the gospel. But how is it that that word of truth that is the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, how does that make a difference in you and to you and for you? It's when the Holy Spirit works the Holy Spirit works on the dead sinner and makes him alive in salvation. The work of regeneration is the word we use. And again, let's go back to chapter 11, Lazarus' tomb. There's Lazarus, four days dead, a rotting corpse. That's our condition apart from Christ. That's who we are before the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes... Even as he did, he went into the tomb, into Lazarus' corruption of his flesh, and he regenerated him. He made him whole and incorrupt and complete again and breathed life into him that he came out at the command of Jesus. That's what the spirit of truth does for us as sinners. We're dead in our trespasses. Dead men do nothing except, shall we say, stink. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. He who is the spirit of truth brings the word of God, which is truth, to bear witness to our heart that it is the truth, that we would believe it. He gives us a new body, or a, new, a, a new inner man. It's a work of regeneration. He gives us the will to believe God, and he gives us faith to believe God. He does all that for us. We've done nothing up to this point until he gives us faith, and then we take that faith and exercise it. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. The Holy Spirit of truth does all this within us. Now Jesus says, concerning the spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him. Neither does it see him, nor knows him. The world is filled with natural men, women, boys, and girls. The natural state of men, the sons of Adam, is dead, as we were just talking about. Dead. And to them, the spiritual things are foolishness. They're suspicious of such things. The natural man, he focuses on what he sees, touch, taste, smell. The, the natural man wants to say, show me the science. Give me the evidence. You, you say that this is true. Show me. Prove it. The natural man does not understand spiritual things of God, and nor can it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Even today, we see how natural man is given over to questioning everything. And we live in a time when we're told, you have your truth, and I have my truth. And in a sense, we're really saying there's no absolute truth. That's what the absurdity and the insanity that we have come to in our day, that everybody has their own truth. Whatever you think, anybody thinks it could be truth. That's so false. Children, there's only one truth. And that is Christ, and that which is revealed to us concerning himself and the Father. But the world mocks and scoffs. And it cannot know the spirit of truth. It cannot accept the spirit of truth. If it could, it would cease to be, what does Jesus say, the world. The world would cease to be the world 
would be distinct from the world because it believes, because the Spirit has acted. So when we, who are in Christ, consider what Christ has done for us, we see the world is out there and we are in Christ. The world cannot receive, neither does it see him nor know him. But then Jesus gives that wonderful contrast, but you know him. Because he dwells in you. The Holy Spirit's in them. Now, one of the things that people misunderstand is uh, that they think that uh, you get saved and then you get the Holy Spirit. That's uh, part of the church that, uh, broadly speaking, uh, teaches that today. But Jesus says, you know him. Now, he's told him, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, right? That is promise. He says, I'm, I'm going away, but I'm going to ask the Father, and he will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. But right here, what does he say? The world doesn't know him, but you know him. Why? Because he dwells in you. My friends, if you have salvation, if you have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have come out of the world and you're sinned unto God in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit has acted in you. It is not of yourselves. The Spirit has done that. So these men have the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is saying you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. There's going to be this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then he also says... He will be with you. That is, on into the future. The Holy Spirit will be with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So in the Great Commission, Jesus says, To go ye therefore unto the nations, teaching them whatsoever things I have commanded you, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And he says what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In his flesh, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He has sent the Holy Spirit who is with us. The Spirit of Christ is with us to the end of the age. And that's his promise. He will be in you, and he will not leave you. We'll conclude with applications, two applications. Let's remember the big theme is all those united to Jesus by faith receive the Holy Spirit who stays with them forever so that they can love Jesus and serve him. That's the promise. We have two applications, one to unbelievers, those who do not know Christ because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Why is it that you know nothing of this divine person, the Holy Spirit? Why is it that you don't know of his power to save? The answer is that sin has made you an enemy with God. You're an enemy against God. Your whole being is opposed to God. All your thoughts are against him. All your affections are for things that God hates. You're angry with God because you think God is looking down and he sees you sinning and you feel like the drunk driver going down the road with a police officer right on his tail. That's how you view God. If God is offensive to you, know this, sinner, you are far more offensive to him. He is a thrice holy God and your sin is very offensive to him. You violate his holy law. You disobey his every command. You're under his wrath and curse for sin. And the wages of sin is death. So what hope is there for you, unbeliever? Hope is found in Jesus Christ, who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Just consider this. Jesus stands before you as the prophet who proclaims to you the will of God for your salvation. He speaks through the Holy Bible and reveals that he is the priest who has offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice to atone for sinners, to wash away sin, to cleanse you of your guilt, to make you righteous before the living God. And as the king of heaven and earth, he commands you to believe on him and be saved.
Jesus is the only prophet, priest, and king. He invites you to come. He invites you to come with nothing in your hand, humbly declaring your spiritual bankruptcy and crying, Oh God, have mercy on me. That is the only response that a sinner can bring to a holy God who he has offended. But to believers, we would say, you children of God, what Jesus teaches here is for your comfort. Jesus began his good work in you by his Holy Spirit, and he will continue that work that he has begun in you until that day when he comes again. He will never leave you. I was thinking about this, the, the, the ongoing nature of this, never leave you. Even as we are in heaven, the Holy Spirit will not leave us. Once the Holy Spirit has worked upon us, he is the one who stays with us and sustains us, and he will ever be with us through all eternity. What a companion. The living God dwelling with us even on into eternity in heaven. The things that Jesus has promised in this passage are connected to these three offices. When Jesus said that the works that I do, you will do even greater works than these, he is speaking about the spread of the gospel. This is an ongoing work of Jesus' prophetic office. He's our prophet. You can bear witness and make disciples because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. He equips you. He enables you to do what Jesus has called you to. Jesus promised that you can pray in his name and he will answer and do it. In this he is exercising his priestly office, making intercession with the Father on our behalf. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray, and even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit can communicate with God our inner groanings. He's the helper there in our prayers. And finally, Jesus says, if you love him, you will keep his precepts as a demonstration of that love. Are we able to do this in our own strength, brothers and sisters? We're not. But King Jesus has asked his Father, And he has sent us the helper, the comforter, to strengthen us. He is that advocate who stands at our side. And he comes, the spirit of Christ comes to bring us the work of our king. To rule and defend us from all his and our enemies. So often, the enemy that needs the subduing is our own flesh. Remember, Jesus said, if you would be my disciple, take up your cross daily. And follow me. Daily we must be crucifying the flesh. And our king sends his spirit to help us to do that. So as we begin, considering what Augustine said, he was right to pray to our heavenly father, command what you will, but supply what you command. The father so loved us that he gave Jesus for our salvation. Praise his name. The father also answered his son's request. And he has sent us the helper who will be with us forever. Amen? Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do look to you. We come absolutely needy, having nothing to commend ourselves to you, wholly leaning on Jesus' name. Lord, we rejoice to know that Jesus is mindful that when he ascended that we would need another helper. We thank you that you have sent one like unto him to abide with us, to minister uh, to us, to strengthen and support us, to convict us of sin. Yea, O God, to complete the good work that he has begun in us against that day. Father, we thank you that our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are intimately involved in all of our life. 
now and forevermore. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.